Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. You guys ready? Open your Bible to the table of contents. This semester at Hill City Church, this this spring, we're going to walk through uh, a New Testament book of the Bible. It's the letter to the Colossians, the book of Colossians. Uh, And how we teach at Hill City, we we like to go through books of the Bible. We like to bounce back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament. We like to go verse by verse. But before we jump into a study about the book of Colossians, what I want to do today is first teach you how to approach any New Testament letter or book of the Bible, like Colossians, Philippians, 1 Corinthians, all of that. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Now, why did you laugh there? I watched three football games yesterday where grown men slapped each other in the butts all day long, and it's completely normal, right? You don't laugh about that. But why is it that when Jarrell gives me a good game at the beginning of a sermon in church, that seems weird? Anyone feel like that's a little weird? Okay. No, you're like, no, we're good with it. All right, me too. Uh, Context matters. We see football games all the time, basketball games, where guys are good games, slap each other in the butt all the time. Um, You generally don't greet people in the office like that, men. Now, some of you do. Sometimes in our office, some of us guys greet each other like that. Usually, it's not customary. So, things can be weird out of context. Fair? When we approach the Bible, all of the Bible, and then today, specifically the letters, the New Testament part of your Bible, we must understand context. It matters. Without context... You will go to really weird places and get things out of the Bible that you were never intended to get. So today is more of a teaching than it is a preaching. I went a little long in the first one. I'm going to try to speed it up, but um, get comfortable, all right? So as I, I think this is so important for us. Some of you come from a faith tradition where you don't really read the Bible much. Um, we love to read the Bible here. We encourage you all to read the Bible. But what I want to look at today is how do we read the Bible? First, let's try to understand it. So table of contents, if you have a Bible, open up there. It's in the beginning. If you have your phone, just go to like a Bible app or Google it if you have to, a list of the books of the Bible. I want to start very simple. So we believe the Bible is one story of God and all that he has done and doing in the world. We believe the Bible is the revealed word of God. And we want to approach it with wisdom and honesty. And to do that, we need context. The Bible's not one genre. As a matter of fact, it's multiple and it can change instantly. How many of you, when you maybe first became a Christian, decided, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible. And so you did like you do in every other book. You start in the very beginning, you start reading, and you make it about two and a half books in, and you're like, this is weird, I'm done. Anyone? Yeah, you get to a place where it starts listing a bunch of names and numbers and measurements for a temple, and you're like, this has no application to me. Well, the Bible is not written like a book that flows seamlessly from one chapter or one section to the next. If we don't have context, we'll miss it. 
It, it would be like, like this. If I'm watching the nightly news, and then I go into the kitchen to get something to eat, and Emily switches the television to an alien invasion movie, and I'm not aware of it, and I come back in not knowing the context has changed, and I look, and aliens are invading the world. I could think, if I'm not very intelligent, that aliens are invading the world right now because when I left one context, went to the food, it appears that it changed. You must have context. So let's look at your Old Testament verse. If you're new to Christianity, your Bible, what we call the Bible, is divided into Old and New Testament. The Old Testament is filled with history, narrative, poetry, it can feel intimidating. Anyone feel like the Old Testament is kind of intimidating? <clears throat> I may need that water back out here um, without the good game. Uh, your Bible, so let's look at the Old Testament. Go to your table of contents. The first five books of the Bible are called uh, the Torah or the law. Some people call it the law of Moses. It begins with Genesis, and it tells the story of creation, the fall, the flood, and it tells the story of God starting over with one man, Abram, or Abraham. And that one man grows into a family and a nation with the purpose of through this family and nation, all of the nations of the world will come back to God. That's your first five books of the Bible. <clears throat> the beginning of the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. The next 12 books, Joshua to Esther. They tell the story of the nation of Israel. Just, it's, it's almost history. They walk through year after year, generation after generation, this story of these people. It reaches a high point under King David and then Solomon. Okay, <clears throat> The next five books of your Bible, Job through Song of Solomon. That is the wisdom literature. That is filled with poetry uh, and, and metaphor and a, and a Hebrew love poem book. It's, it's very different than the first 12 books before that. It's your wisdom literature. Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Job. The final 17 books are the prophecy to Israel. So that is God sending prophets to speak to Israel on how they're to live in the time they find themselves and stirring in them a hope that a new human will come, a new and better Adam that will come from the line of King David, and this new human will faithfully follow God's law and rescue the entire world and bring the nations back to God. That's the main storyline of your Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is walking through this storyline, through these different books. It gets to the book of Malachi, which is the last Last one, and, and the people of Israel are told to hope because this rescuer is coming. And then we have 400 years of silence. God says nothing. No prophets, no wisdom literature, nothing. The people are waiting. And this now transitions to the New Testament. So the Old Testament is everything before Jesus. The New Testament begins with Jesus and goes on. And the New Testament begins with the announcement that a virgin has now become pregnant and will give birth and the Messiah is coming. <clears throat> and that begins your New Testament. In the New Testament, your first four books are called, the, many people call them the Gospels. They are four accounts or four narratives on the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. They're all about Jesus. The word gospel means good news. 
So these are narratives of the good news that Jesus is that promised human from the line of David that will come to rescue the entire world. Now, don't want to nerd out too much, but even in those four Gospels, they're broken into subcategories. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, which means they're alike. Uh, Synoptic means seen together. They tell many of the same stories. They follow the same theme. Thank you so much. Without the good game. Um, John is a different book. And it has, it's, a, it's one of the Gospels. But it has different stories, different miracles, different narratives. So it's seen a little bit different. So your four Gospels tell of Jesus. Then the next book of your Bible is Acts. The Acts are the Acts of the Apostles. So Jesus has these disciples. He commissions them out. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. He commissions them, and Acts tells the story of what those disciples did. That's what it does. They, they go out, they share the gospel. When, believers, um, when, they, when some believers come together in a city, they make them into a little church, and they start churches, and it spreads. It's the beginning of the church. That's the book of Acts. And then from Acts, it gets into the letters, or the pastoral epistles. And these are letters written to churches. And these people that write these letters are saying that Jesus is that promised king from the line of David that's come to rescue the whole world, and they should believe in him and follow him. The very last book of your Bible is Revelation. It's a vision that John has of what the end will be like when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom forever. So so these people that wrote, and this is what we're going to focus today, these people that wrote these letters, you call them books, the book of Philippians, the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Colossians. They're not actually books, they're letters. They're letters written by an apostle to a church. Now, many of you have asked this question as you become to camp, became to Christianity. If the letters were written by men, why do we call it the Word of God? Anyone? Yeah, that's a good question to ask about because if I write a letter or a book, please don't call it the Word of God. So these apostles that wrote these letters were directly commissioned by Jesus. Apostle means Uh, set apart or sent one. They're sent to communicate to these new churches on behalf of Jesus. The apostles are commissioned, this is what's key, directly by Jesus. Many of them, uh, John, Peter, James, they are disciples of Jesus who are commissioned and now become apostles. There's one exception. Who is it? Paul. Paul was not a disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was trying to kill Christians. And Jesus appears to him on a vision and says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to follow me. And Jesus directly commissions Paul, which is why Paul is called an apostle. Let me just look at uh, Romans chapter 1. Please please turn there. It will be on the screen. I I just want to look at how Paul thinks of himself as he writes letters. Okay, so... Here's what he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, one that's set apart, that's sent. He says, set apart for the gospel of God, 
which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What's he talking about? The Old Testament. He's going to say, I have been commissioned by Jesus, who, Jesus, was set apart from the beginning, and all of the Scriptures talk about him. Hear me, Paul did not believe that Jesus was a nice moral teacher. He believed he was the Son of God. Concerning his Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, do you hear the Old Testament wording here? Ascended from David, from the line of David. According to the flesh, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Uh, Paul has on him a grace and apostleship that's unique, which is why when he writes, we call that Scripture. To bring obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. One of the storylines of the Bible, and we're going to see it in Colossians, is the good news of the gospel going to all nations. Including you who were called to belong to Christ Jesus. Okay, so we have the letters, all of your New Testament letters, from the narrative of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the way to Revelation. These are letters written primarily to house churches. There's a couple that are written to individuals, but almost all of them are written to house churches. And they're addressing issues going on in that local context. So the first thing we have to understand, if you're going to understand these books of the Bible, the letters, Colossians, you must understand it's a letter written to a particular people in a particular place in a particular particular context. Hear me, the Bible is not God's love letter written to you. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. He loves you, but it's not God's love letter written to you. Book of Colossians is a letter by Paul written to the church in Colossae. And we have to read it as such. If we don't understand this, we often approach the Bible, especially these New Testament letters, we approach them incorrectly. We, we approach them like a theological textbook. Well, I just need to get in there and find theology. Is there theology in the New Testament, in the letters? Yes, a lot of it. But the primary purpose of those is not, oh, here, here's all you need to know. Here's all the theological points you need to know. It's not an instruction book. You will not find in the Bible three ways to have a happy marriage. This is important. The Bible, especially your New Testament letters, is not a collection of inspiring verses. They didn't print verses on coffee cups in the first century, that they'd be good, inspiring, motivational things. Before they lifted weights in 1 Corinthians, they did not say, now I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Highlighters weren't invented in the first century. It's not a collection of verses that I'm just supposed to read and, ooh, I like that one, that's my life verse, and take that out and take that out and take that out. The scriptures are not incantations, potions, or if I just say this one verse, magically everything will happen in my life. 
This is super important that we learn to read the Bible the way the Bible's meant to be read. Because what we often do is we open it up, Colossians, okay, what does God have for me? And that's not the best way to read the Bible. Um, even like when you read your Bible in your New Testament letters, when it says the word you, this is the only time when Texans get it right. Because it's not you, it's y'all. That's how you should read it. God's not talking to you, God's talking y'all. A group of churches, or a group of people in a church. So a lot of us, though, we, we say, okay, I'm going to read my Bible today. So we do the you know, Bible roulette, you just flip through and pull out a passage. All right, this is God's word for me. And you read a verse. All right, this is my truth for this verse. Sometimes that's easy. L let me give you one. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, but it gets a God, gift of God, which no one should boast. And all of God's people said, amen. That one's easy. Like, I can just read it, and boom, that is true about me. Now, again, the you is actually y'all, because it's written to a group of people, but it's true. Um, here's another one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through... Good, good Bible memorization, kids. Yeah, you know that one. It's part of the, what we call the Romans Road sometimes. Uh, which Is that true? Yes. Is that very easy to apply to me today? Yes, I can take it on the surface. One more. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and... Beautiful. But most of you can't finish it. Because that's not a period. It's a comma. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified freely by the grace in Christ Jesus who set forth the propitiation for our sins. You see the dangers of just taking out one little part and, oh, that's a verse. When the Bible was written, it didn't have chapters and verses. Colossians, first, uh, Thessalonians, Corinthians, they're, they're letters. Because here's, here's the tendency is to say about the Bible, well, God settles it, I, or God said it, that settles it, I believe it. Amen, amen. Which works there. But how about this? 2 Corinthians, a letter. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, God said it, I believe it. All right, pucker up, baby. <laughs> I wonder if there's a certain cultural context that happens there. And maybe God's will for you is not to go kiss everyone that walks through Hill City. Now, if you go to church in Italy, you better be ready to pucker up because they're going to kiss you on the sides of the cheek before every church service. When I was there a few years ago for, uh, for New Year's Eve. And Giacomo, they had a big New Year's Eve party. It's like 40 people from the church, and they're all there. And one of their traditions at New Year's Eve is they all go around and they kiss one another. And so I'm just, I'm embracing my Italian, okay? And I'm going around, I'm kissing people, and I went to kiss this guy. And sometimes uh, when I'm in different cultures, I make some mistakes. And there's a direction you go to start the kiss, and I accidentally went the wrong direction, and I mouth-kissed him. <laughs> and he looks at me like this. I'm like... I'm an American. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. <laughs> if you just try to take 2 Corinthians 13, 12, oh, that's God's word for me. Be cautious. 
Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 11, 4. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head. Boy, don't you wear a hat in church. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I see a few hats. Good job, ladies. Since the same as if her head was shaven, for do you see the problems? Does that mean that men should not wear hats and women should wear hats in church? Maybe there's some cultural things happening there. And maybe that applies to a whole different culture and set of reasons. One of my favorites, 1 Corinthians 11. Does nature itself teach you that a man who wears his hair long is a disgrace? Where are all you young people with that long hair? We have to be cautious when we read the Bible. We must read it in the context in which it was written. It was not written to you in the 21st century. It was written to another group of people in the 1st century. Now, is it beneficial for you in the 21st century? Please hear me. Yes, of course it is. If you read it in context. So, so when we're done today, we're gonna, we have all this equipment on stage. A lot of times there's more. We have boxes like this that have, that have wheels. We have to set up and tear down because the Galois has shows. And so all this goes to our third floor. And so if you're on the setup team, um, what will happen is when you guys are out, we will bring a ramp, and a big long ramp, and put it right here. Because we have one terrain up here, this big, flat, elevated stage. And we have to get all this equipment to a different terrain where there's a drop-off and there's a slanted floor going up. So in order to get from one terrain to another, we have to have a bridge. You with me? Because if not, we will spend a lot of money replacing new equipment. So the bridge helps us get this from this context to another. That's how I want to teach you to read the Bible. The Bible's written to the first century, this context. You all are out there in a different context. So you can't just read the Bible written here and just boom, automatically it's written to me. No, it's written to them. But we want a bridge to then take it to us. So I want to give you some tools to figure out how do we bridge the gap. Now, I want to pause. We have a thing at Hill City called Hill City Institute. Some of you have done this. It's, it's one Saturday a month where you come and we teach you lots of things like this. If any of this sparks your interest, enroll for Hill City Institute. We do it every semester. We cover deeper things like this. We must understand this bridge because, hear me, if not, you can take a verse written in this context, pull a pin, and drop a theological grenade right in the middle and hurt a lot of people. And it's done all the time. Okay, so, so let's bridge the gap. The first thing to understand, and we'll talk about this next week, it's an actual letter written to particular people in a particular time in a particular place. I'll spend some time on that next week when we actually get into Colossians. By the way, here's your homework this week. Read the book of Colossians. Read it as a letter. How are letters meant to be read? From beginning to end, all at once. Read it like that. Take the book of Colossians this week. It'll take you 15 minutes. And sit down and read it from start to finish in one setting. Maybe even go, I have a, the Dwell app on my phone where it can be read and I can listen to it with music. Maybe listen to it being read. Because that's actually how they would have done it in the first century. All right, so here's our bridge. Here's the very first thing. 
When I approach any New Testament letter, I want to say this. What is the Bible context? Meaning, how does this letter fit into the overall story of the Bible? That story that God is sending a new Adam, a new human from the line of David to rescue the whole world and take the gospel to all nations. How does this letter, the book of Philippians, the letter to Colossians, how does it tell that story? If you read something in a letter, uh, let's say it talks about humility. Let's look at Jesus. What did Jesus teach about pride or humility? What's some parables like the prodigal son that actually speaks to humility because the older brother rebels because he thinks he's too good? How does Jesus address humility? As you read your Bible, you'll see a verse and you'll see like a little letter A, real small, or like a C. You know what those are? They're hyperlinks to other passages in Scripture where theologians have said, ooh, this verse hyperlinks to Second Corinthians or to, or to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 14. And it has context to help you understand this. Look at your Bibles. Do you see some of those hyperlinks? Follow them. See if it helps you. So how does this passage, this letter, this verse, this sentence, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, how does that fit into the overall story of the Bible? Second part of your bridge, cultural context. So the letters are written to a group of people living in the first century Greco-Roman world whose lives and cultures are influenced by Greece, Alexander the Great, and then now Rome. What are the cultural narratives? What are the beliefs? What are the values? What are the practices that happen in the first century that's different than it is now? Even in particular, the different letters, they're all written in that first century, but one letter is written to, in Colossians, is, is written to the church at Colossians, Colossae. Another letter, 1 Corinthians, is written to the church in Corinth. They are even completely different cities. So Corinth is a major city. It's wealthy. The arts are a priority. There's over 26 temples, these huge temples where they will worship idols. Part of their worship as idols is they sacrifice animals to these gods. They have temple prostitutes, and so part of your worship, you go to that, that temple, and they would drink a lot of wine, and then prostitutes would come out. And that's part of your worship to those gods. 1 Corinthians, or Corinth, it's kind of a mix of New Orleans and Mardi Gras, New York, and Vegas, all put together in one city. Now, the book of Colossians, it's written to a small town, uh, Bolivar, Missouri. A little more conservative values, a little more different, a different pace to life. So even thinking how I would write now to a church in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, and how I would write to a church in Bolivar might look different. Would you agree? So how does that fit into why the letter says what it does? So read 1 Corinthians, and then read Colossians. Paul talks about way different things in a different, in a different manner. So cultural context, it's huge. So first, how does it fit, our bridge, how does it fit in the overall story of the Bible? Second, 
What's the cultural context? What is the world like in Roman Grecan world? Uh, even this, partway through your New Testament, a new emperor comes, a guy named Nero. Anyone heard of him? He's not a very nice guy. Paul writes a letter right during that transition to tell people how they need to live in light of a change of power. I don't know if that sounds familiar. What's going on in the cultural context? Hey, here's the third one. Situational context. What is happening in that church at that given time? So not only is Paul writing to Corinth and Colossae in those churches, and there are two different cities, but there are two different issues going on. In, Colo in Corinth, one of the main issues, they're trying to figure out how do we live in a city where every restaurant is attached to a temple, and what they serve at the restaurant is all the food that's been sacrificed in these temples. Colossae is not dealing with that. They're dealing with something incredibly different. Entirely different. So hear me. The writers who are writing your New Testament letters are primarily addressing issues in the local context. The letters are more pastoral than they are theological. Now, do the New Testament letters have theology in them? Come on. A lot of theology. Usually at the beginning... But even in the theology, it's a theology written to set up why Paul's going to tell them to do what he wants them to do in that context. So I don't think all the apostles got together and said, all right, what's the 21 theological truths we need to make sure and teeth through all of our letters? Okay, Paul, you get this one. Peter, you get... No. They're dealing with issues. They tell, teach theology to deal with the particular issues. That's why a lot of your New Testament, it'll have all this theology and it'll say, therefore, because of all this, therefore, here's how to live. Um, so, so let me give you an example of this and, and why we have to be very careful. So let's take the letter to 1 Corinthians, to, to the, the church in Corinth. Um, one of the issues they're dealing with, like I said, is how do we operate where all the restaurants are temples that serve meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And in this church, there's a division that sparks. You have team meat that says, hey, if it's a steak, I like it. And idols, are there's no such thing as like this other god, like Zeus isn't a thing, so who cares if it's sacrificed to Zeus because he's not a thing and I like steak. Anyone team meat? Yeah, okay. Then you have team no meat that says, well, you are not very spiritual because that's been sacrificed to idol and Christ is our one true God and so any other idol is wrong. And didn't he say in the Old Testament that we're not to worship other idols and that's wrong and they're arguing. So Paul's going to address it. 1 Corinthians 8. Let's, let's look at this real quick. And I, I have a point for this. He says, If anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this person, this weak person, is destroyed, the brother whom Christ died. So he's talking, team me, he's talking to him. Thus, sinning against your brothers, team no me, and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, see the therefore? If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
So Paul is addressing this situation. He's talking about it. Now, some of you know where I'm going. If you've been in church in the Midwest America, particularly since Prohibition, there's a big debate, should Christians drink wine? And oftentimes, this is where people go to form whichever opinion they have. Question, is this passage about drinking wine? No. Because here's what we want to say. So if your team, no wine. Therefore, if food, wine, makes my brother stumble, I will never eat wine, drink wine, lest I make my brother stumble. Settles it. And then you point fingers at any Christian who drinks wine. So that was 1 Corinthians 8. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, two chapters later. All things are lawful, but all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but all, all things build up. By the way, you notice the quotation marks? We'll get to that in a second. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Did Paul just contradict himself? Didn't he just two chapters later say, I'll never eat meat again, and now he's saying, eat whatever you want? You see how tricky this is? You see the dangers? Enter your topic. Uh, someone asked me outside, so Christians do yoga. Well, Paul said, if a brother makes my stumble, I will never eat meat again. Be careful. Be careful. In these letters, there are things happening in the local context that are mentioned. Sometimes we know what's happening, like right here. There's other times where things are mentioned, and even the smart theologians have no idea what Paul's talking about. There's a place in Corinth or in Corinthians where he mentions, hey, you guys are, are uh, baptizing the dead. Meaning after people died, they were baptizing them. Paul does it's just one little sentence. He doesn't say anything about it, whether it's good, whether it's bad. I'll talk more about that next week. He just mentions it. You see how we have to be careful? We're going to start baptizing dead people at Hill City. And a lot of you won't come back. So, so if you want to read your New Testament and those letters, here's the reality. So if you don't like this, you're going to have to be okay knowing that you don't know everything that's going on. You just do. <laughs> just like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And, man, I've got to wrestle with that. And I'm not saying like a 1 Corinthians can't inform what you believe for yourself on certain issues. But here, you better hear me, be careful to tell other people what they need to believe when it's not clear in Scripture. So if I believe that Christians should never do yoga, and I say, Bo, based on 1 Corinthians, you should never be, do yoga, that's called legalism. And we have to be cautious with it. Here's some questions to ask for to this local context. What did it mean to the original hearers that heard this? So can you put yourself in first, uh, first century, in the church in Corinth, with all these things going on? I wonder what Paul's words told them. I wonder what's going on in that context of that place. Why, why did Paul say that? Why was that so important that he spent time to talk about it? What information do they have, the hearers of the letter, that I don't have? I'll talk about that some more next week. Here's a big question. Is the main point that I'm getting out of this, the main point that Paul was trying to get across? Let me say that again. Is the main point that I'm getting out of this the main point that Paul was trying to get across? 
hey, man, I want to share you. I read God's word this morning, and here's what God's saying to me. I'm not saying that God couldn't say that to you. I'm just saying be cautious if it's not what God was saying to them. Just be cautious. Okay, so we want Bible context. We want uh, cultural context. We want situational context. What's happened in the church? Here's the last one, literary context. When a letter is written, a letter is meant to be read from front to back because when you write a letter, it starts with introduction. It goes through a very careful flow of thought to the end. A lot of times what we want to do is we want to take a letter, want to take one paragraph out of the letter without figuring out how it applies in the whole letter and then just say, what's God have for me? We have to take the literary context. Why does this paragraph go to this paragraph? Why did Paul talk about this theological truth and then say, therefore, and then address this? If we just pull out verses randomly, cut and paste, we can make the Bible say anything we want it to say. And you can justify anything. You just cut and paste. You make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Here, a friend of mine told me this week, it was, it was brilliant. He said, Daniel, a text can never mean what it never meant. Say it again. A text, 1 Corinthians, could never mean, should I drink wine, what it never meant. Now, yes, I can apply it to my situation and wrestle with that and pray and talk to other believers but be cautious just to pull it out. So we have to take the literary context and we have to try to understand how does this all fit together? Why does the writer go from one sentence to another, one paragraph to another, and how does it fit into the whole? Sometimes, like I read in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is quoting people at the church because there's letters going to Paul. So Actually, 1 Corinthians is the second letter to that church. They wrote Paul a letter. Paul responds. They write again. He responds again. We don't have the first letter. It's actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. And in that passage I read, you saw the quotation marks. Uh, quote, food for the stomach, stomach for food. Paul is not saying that that's God's word for you, that if you're hungry, you should eat, and any desire you should have, you should fulfill. He's quoting people in that church or in that city. So literary form, read, and intelligence. Oh, it has quotes. Maybe someone else said that. And try to dig into that. Uh, does this seem overwhelming or is this, is this helpful? Is this practical? Yeah. Uh, some of you are like, well, where do I start? Go online and, and there's commentaries online for free. Blue Letter Bible, Bible Hub, have commentaries. Get a good study Bible that will help you. They'll give some of this context. Follow the hyperlinks. Learn to read the Bible the way the Bible's meant to be read. And I believe you will have a depth of knowledge and affection for Jesus and for one another that will, is beyond what you have now. Guys, listen, it's so important to approach letters this way, your New Testament this way. If not, the potential to divide, to condemn, for legalism, it is a real danger. Context, context, context. 
The letters are not written to us in 21st century. They are for us, but they're written to someone else. And if you've paid attention at all this week, we have a divided nation with opinions everywhere. And if we are not careful, that same spirit of division will leak into our church. And we can use the Bible to do it. The ironic thing is the very thing written, these letters, to promote unity in their local churches are what divide us now. We have this group and this group. Are you in this camp? What do you, and they divide us. Now listen, I love to wrestle and think and talk and research and listen to different opinions. I love it. But read the Bible with humility. You may not always be right. And different perspectives can actually be good. It's not about do you disagree. It's about the manner in which you disagree. I know in a church like Hill City, look around. We have young, old. We have different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different political leanings. We have it all. Do you think we are going to agree on everything? No. You'd be a fool to think that. And that's okay. It's the manner in which we disagree. So a few weeks ago, a couple of our church, friends of mine, call, they called me and said, hey, Hood, can we meet? We want to talk to you about uh, just something we kind of disagree with, how you teach and on this theological point. I'm like, yeah. So we met and we ate lunch and we, we talked and we wrestled and I listened and they listened and we talked. And by the end of the meeting, the end of this lunch, we started talking about a mutual friend that we've been praying for for years and we're all crying Beautiful tears of what God's doing in this person's life. Do we still disagree? Yes. But the manner in which we disagree promoted unity. And that's why, your elders, we chose Colossians. Colossians is written to a church that have all these different people, these different groups, and it's calling us to a new humanity under the rule and reign of Jesus, not the old humanity. And I believe it's timely for us at Hill City Church. 2020 and 21 now has been a year of sharp division. And if we are not in guard, it will bleed in. And what I'm more concerned about is not what we agree on this, on this, this, the manner in which we disagree. Colossians is written to stir their love for Jesus and for unity for one another. One of our core values is a church family. Families disagree. <laughs> you just got back from Christmas. Some of you could tell stories. Families disagree. But families are committed to, a good family is committed to the manner in which they disagree. I was reading a, good, uh, a letter from a, um, a friend of mine, Jim Hardwick. He's Scott's dad, one of our elders. Uh, and just calling in the midst of this times we're in, calling Christians, and I quote, to a radical, supernatural love for all people. Read the book of Colossians and you'll think twice on what you say about someone you disagree with. We live in a, a polarized country right now, a polarized nation. At Hill City Church, that's, that's all I can focus on. Could we be a group of people that are learning to love one another who view things differently? 
that we have Christians and brothers and sisters that disagree with how things are from you. And that's okay. And it's more, what I'm more concerned about is the manner in which we disagree and love one another than who's right. And there are unbelievers, non-Christians in our country who disagree with you. And the manner in which you say or talk about or to them matters. Read Jesus, the things he said. Read the book of Colossians. Our prayer for Colossians, we'll get into the book next week, is that we are heirs with Christ and that Christ is forming this new humanity called the church, called to live the way he lived with radical supernatural love for him and for one another. And we're going to pray that through Colossians, that's the main lens we're going to look through because it's the main lens of that book, that God will stir in us, a community of believers, to have radical supernatural love for one another. Let's pray.